Now, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter five. Esther chapter five, we're gonna continue our study in this wonderful Old Testament book. And I want us to know where we were as we ended chapter four. There are four main characters in this story. The first is Xerxes. This is 500 years before Jesus walked on planet Earth. Xerxes is the emperor, the king of the Persian Empire. It's the largest empire the world has ever known from India to Ethiopia, it's the biggest, most massive, most powerful empire ever at that point in the fifth century BC. And he is very powerful and very influential, but had been wounded by some skirmishes and wars. And, and so he's gone through a season where there could be some attack from the inside, from the outside. And so he's been a wounded leader, Xerxes. But he has a man named Haman that he puts second in command. And Haman is a very selfish man, a very arrogant man. He's second in charge. He uh, is a racist who hates the Jews. He's an anti-Semite who hates the Jews. And he tricks the king into creating a law. And when a Persian king made a law, not even they could reverse the law. But he tricks him into making a law because one Jewish man won't bow down to Haman as a ruler, as second in command of the empire. Haman tricks Xerxes into this law that would take effect 11 months after it was signed, which we're still right there just a few days after that when we open chapter five of Esther. So it's about 11 months off. On March 7th, there is a law that says all the Jews throughout all 127 provinces of Persia will be killed. They, the Jewish people will be wiped off the face of the map on that day. And the law says that the Persian people are to kill their neighbors who are Jewish, take their belongings. They can keep most of it. There'll be a nice tax on it that'll help Xerxes and the empire's treasury. But on March 7th, 11 months from now, can you imagine how frightening that was for the Jews to know on that day there's going to be a holocaust, you're going to be annihilated. But remember, the Jews are God's chosen people, and God was protecting them and keeping his covenant with them that they would be the group through whom, the people group through whom the Messiah would come. Ultimately, Jesus would come. And the Jews had gone through a time of, of punishment by God at the hand of foreign entities and under the Persians, they were allowed after a time of captivity to begin to return back to the land. But now there is this threat against them that they're gonna be annihilated, even in the area of Jerusalem and the area of the Promised Land. All Jews are gonna be wiped out because that fell under the Persian Empire's footprint. So Haman is this evil, selfish man who is excited about what he's getting out of this. He gets to destroy the Jews. The man who wouldn't bow to him is a man named Mordecai, a Jewish man, who raises his younger cousin as his own because she was an orphan. And Mordecai is a man who won't bow to Haman. And Haman, instead of just taking care of and killing Mordecai, he goes after all of Mordecai's people. When he finds out he's Jewish, he tricks Xerxes into saying, we'll destroy all the Jews. Now, Xerxes and Haman do not know that Mordecai's cousin that he raised as his own daughter, Esther, the title character of this book, that Esther, the fourth character, is Jewish, and she is the queen. She's married to Xerxes. She got there through a horrible process, but she has been queen now. He has a number of women in his harem, but she is his special wife, a unique and intimate relationship, and she is Jewish, and Haman and Xerxes have no idea of that. And when this decree comes down, Mordecai sends word in chapter four to Esther and says, you've gotta do something. You've gotta go into the king. You've gotta save your people. And she says, I can't go into him. If you go into King Xerxes without being invited, 
you're immediately killed unless he extends his golden scepter and saves your life because you become a threat to him. And he hasn't called me in for 30 days. And many scholars believe that she understood that maybe she was on the way out being replaced with a younger queen. And so she hasn't seen him for the longest period in the five years she's been queen. She's saying, this just isn't the right time. And Mordecai says, no, no, for such a time as this, your whole people, the Jewish people, are gonna be wiped off the map in 11 months and God has put you in a position where you can maybe do something. And she says, all right, if I'll go into him at one point, and if I die, I die, but I'm gonna take the next right step. And she says, here's the next right step, Mordecai. You guys pray, or you guys fast, and the implication is they pray because they'd cry out to God when they fast. I will fast, we'll do this for three days, and then I'll go into the king. Now, fasting is when we give up something physical to focus on the spiritual. And so he says, uh, you, she says, you guys on the outside, you Jewish people, fast, cry out to God, and I here in the palace, along with my assistants and servants, we will fast and cry out to God, and then I will go in to King Xerxes. Last week, we talked about how it looked like they were trapped. There was no way out. The Jews were gonna be killed. There was nothing that could happen. Even Esther thinks she can't do anything about this. And so we talked about what we do when we feel trapped, and we do, we said then, what they did. We take the next right step. She said, let's fast, let's focus. Let's cry out to God. Now, what's interesting in this book is God is never mentioned in this book anywhere. But what we know from the other 65 books of the scriptures, this one Old Testament book, this historic book of God's people, may not have God's name in it, but it has the evidence of God all over it. He is working behind the scenes. The invisible hand of God is so evident in this book. They felt trapped. Remember I described even the illustration of the, the bunny trapped in my garage and opening the doors and trying to leave it alone for an hour or two. And, and after I told that story and tried to explain how panicked the bunny was, and sometimes we do that in life and we're trapped in our circumstances and we don't know where we're gonna turn. And um, I got a big question about my sermon from last week right away. As the week went on, just cut pouring in. The question was, what happened to the bunny? <laughs> Deep theological question. They tell you in seminary, number one rule to illustrations. Never leave the congregation hanging because they'll think about that and not listen to the rest of your message. <laughs> well, just so you know, as best I know, the bunny lived because there was no bunny there after a few hours. Somebody said, don't fool yourself. That bunny may have been having bunnies in your garage. A number of people sent me either videos or gifs that were something like this. They said, this might be you one day. So the bunny lived. I love what our uh, chairman of our elders, Rick Bartlett, uh, texted me. We were talking about the, the bunny I think lived and, and he wrote back, he said, you know, you're, you're teaching through Esther and all. He said, did you ever consider maybe you were visited that night before uh, the weekend message by the Esther bunny? <laughs> Isn't that bad? Isn't that terrible? But we left them trapped at the end of chapter four, and now we're gonna see in chapters five and six an incredible unfolding of, of just a wonderful and crazy story of how God works behind the scenes. And today we're gonna to talk about when the things of life are much more than a coincidence. Much more than a coincidence. People love to talk about karma, coincidence, chance, luck. We have a personal creator who will be personally accountable to, who is personally weaving in this world his eternal purposes and plans according to his sovereignty and his providence. There's no such thing as karma or luck or chance. 
Our God is weaving something from the good, bad, and the ugly to accomplish his purposes. Yogi Berra said, that's too coincidental to be a coincidence. <laughs> Albert Einstein said, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And I think that's a great statement that kind of summarizes the book of Esther. You don't see God's name anywhere in here in any form, but God is all over this book. Today, as we look at chapters five and six, I want us to understand that every next right step allows us to see more clearly the random coincidences of life as divine appointments with God. When you walk forward and take the next right step, and you walk forward, you don't know the whole path ahead, it's, it's cloudy, it's dark, it's, it's twisty, you don't know what the next, where it's leading, but you take the next right step in obedience to God and, and the direction of God's spirit in your life, and you look back, you say, wait a minute, those things that happened, those people whose paths crossed my path, that stuff, those weren't coincidences, those were divine appointments with God. He's weaving something, even in the good, bad, and ugly of my life. Now, before you can be in tune to be able to see those divine appointments, instead of seeing the coincidences, luck, or karma of life, you have to have a relationship with God. And that relationship only comes through forgiveness that is provided to us by his son who was crucified, buried, and raised for us so we could have new life and so that we could be able to see God in our lives in a unique and special way. And you can't really begin to understand these divine appointments till you have a relationship with God. I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus if you haven't. Commit your life to Christ. I'd love to chat with you in the lobby. Our care team is down front after the service to pray with you about any need, but they'll talk to you about what it means to know Christ. You can text the number below me on the screen. Just text the number 58568 if you're online with us or if you're in the room, just text that number and put in the message of that text the word, the name, Jesus, and we'll send you some materials to help you grow in the Lord now that you've received Christ or we'll, we'll be able to answer questions. Someone on our team will follow up with you this week, but you gotta know that you know Jesus to be able to walk through life, taking the next steps and be able to say, wait, those weren't coincidences. That wasn't luck. That wasn't a, just, it just so happened. Those were divine appointments. In chapters five and six, I want us to see five signs a random coincidence is actually a divine appointment. Five things you can look for that you see in chapters five and six. So here they are, they're fasting, they're, they're focused on God. The third day comes, and we read in Esther chapter five and verse one. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. I mentioned, I usually use the NIV, but sometimes reading long narrative passages in the Old Testament, the NLT is accurate and it flows smoothly, so I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Some of the verses, most of the verses will appear on the screen. On the third day of the fast, so she took that night, next right step, she fasted. Esther put on her royal robes, now she's gonna take the next right step, and entered the inner court of the palace, just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance, when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court. He welcomed her and held out the golden scepter to her. Whew. She could have been killed, but he shows her grace. He welcomes her in. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. That's believed to mean that she acknowledges the grace that he's shown her as an emperor, uh, allowing her to come in uninvited. Then the king, verse three, asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Now, half the kingdom is an idiom that means whatever you want, it's all yours, anything you want. Verse five, 
the, or verse four, and Esther replied, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. Remember, second in command, Haman, selfish, anti-Semite. And she says, I want you and Haman to come to a dinner, a feast, just, just you two, it'll be the three of us. And, and it says, the king turned to his descendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. Here are the three of them. This is unusual and unique, and we'll see that Haman knew that. Verse six, verse six, and while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you. Here it is again, this idiom, even if it is half the kingdom. What do you want? Here's your chance to say, you've been tricked by this man. All of my people, the Jews, yes, I'm Jewish, Xerxes, yes, I'm Jewish, Haman, are gonna be killed 11 months from now, and you signed this, he tricked you into this, he didn't tell you what people group it was, and it's my people, you put a death sentence on me, do something about this. You'd think that'd be a response, right? Esther replied, this is my request, and deepest wish, and I think she sort of pauses, uh, uh, if I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant me a request and do what I ask, Here's my request. Please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet and I, that I will prepare for you. Then I'll explain what this is all about. Come to dinner tonight. They get to the dinner. He says, what do you want? We're here. We did what you want. And for some reason, and scholars argue over what reason, something didn't happen in the dynamic that she expected. Maybe she thought Haman would kind of show himself in this intimate setting and he'd, he'd, be, he'd be shown for who he really is and then Xerxes would turn against him. Something doesn't happen and so she doesn't make the big request, save my people. She says, uh, dinner tomorrow night? <laughs> and I think we get a couple things when she says, then I'll tell you what this is all about. There are a couple things I want to observe here. The, two, the first two signs of these five signs when a random coincidence is actually a divine appointment. Number one, something that seems so impossible doesn't seem so impossible anymore. Something that seems so impossible doesn't seem so impossible anymore. You see, this idea that she could do something to save her people was so impossible, but the idea that she could walk into the king and he wouldn't have her killed, that was impossible. So now something that was impossible has been moved away as she took the next right step and then took the next right step. Now she begins to think, wait a minute, maybe, just maybe that impossible thing of saving my people is possible. And so when you look and you say, wait a minute, I took the next right step and what was impossible isn't so impossible anymore. Jeremiah cried out in Jeremiah 32, 17, O sovereign Lord, that means he's over everything always at all times. You made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And Esther begins to understand that as she steps forward, taking each next right step. So what's our response? We say, wait a minute, maybe what seems so impossible about my finances, my job, my family, it's, it's not so impossible. God's been doing some things. These divine appointments that look like coincidences, what, what's happening here? How do we respond to the idea that something that seems so impossible doesn't seem so impossible anymore? You know what you do? You take the next right step. We say, well, that's where you left us last week, Thornton. This is so critical to our walk of faith. We begin to see that this is God's divine hand working, and you still wonder, well, what do I do? You take the next right step. Secondly, the second sign a random coincidence is a divine appointment is timing that seems so perfect doesn't seem so perfect anymore. 
Sometimes we say, well, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, and then something messes with the timing, we get caught in traffic, or, or something happens and someone can't show up, and we're frustrated, and it takes another week or another month, and then eventually we look back and we go, wow, that timing that was so perfect that I planned wasn't so perfect, God disrupted that, and then when this happened, what do you know, that was the right timing. And that's what happens with her. She's saying, you come to the banquet, but something happened where she doesn't think the dynamic is right to make the big ask. And so when Xerxes says, what do you want? I'll give you anything. She says, uh, she pauses. Somehow there's a pause that happens. And we'll see in a few moments, God uses this pause. This is a part of God's sovereignty happening through her own heart, maybe even through her, her intimidation or her fear or her uncertainty or lacking clarity. She takes the next right step. Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. How do we respond when timing that seems so perfect doesn't seem so perfect anymore? The response is wait when God nudges you to wait. Sometimes the next right step is to wait. And for whatever reason, she waited, and God is going to use her. Now, from this point, Esther and Mordecai know nothing of what happens from chapter five, verse nine, through the end of chapter six, Mordecai and Esther are never a part of the story. And this pregnant pause that she takes as her right next step, God uses in an incredible way. And he doesn't use it as luck or coincidence. It creates a series of divine appointments overnight because she took the next right step. When God nudged her to wait, she waited. Look at Esther chapter five, and verse nine, let's read the rest of the chapter. Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. Now, why is he happy? He says that he was happy. He tells that in just a few moments. But you see, to be invited into a setting where it's just the king and the queen and you, you're not only number two, the most powerful man in the empire, in the world in that day, in the fifth century BC, but indications are you might be being chosen by Xerxes to be his successor. And so he, he is thinking, hey, this is getting even better. Man, I'm gonna annihilate the Jews. I'm gonna be the emperor one day, just maybe. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, do you see what he expects? He expects the Jews to tremble in his presence for 11 months. He's relishing this. Such an arrogant man. And Haman can't stand it. Mordecai's doing the same thing he'd done before. He won't show him the respect that Haman thinks he deserves. He gets really upset. Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. He goes home, he gets his wife, Zeresh, and, and he gets some friends together and talks about how successful he is and all the wealth he has and all the children and family he has in terms of th that era in the world, he's one of the most successful people ever, and he describes it, and he says, and to top this all off, I'm second in command, and I had dinner with the king and queen, and we have dinner with the king and queen tomorrow night. It's very possible, he says, this could be the moment where it's announced, I'm the successor to Xerxes. Then it says in verse 13, then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. This Jewish guy, Mordecai, he just gets under my skin. I'm so ticked off. He's got everything, everything's successful. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. Now that sounds really strange to us. 
that it's possible from what we understand in history that every morning Xerxes had those who tried to rebel against him, those who committed heinous crimes, much like the Romans did with the cross, that in the morning they would impale those people they wanted to make an example of for their evil or their treason, and they did it on a 75-foot pole, and the person would hang there all day, scaring anyone else to even try to cross any law or Xerxes in any way. And, and Mordecai's people say, you know what you ought to do? You add one more pole. It's easy. You can do it overnight. You add one more, and you just tell the king, you just want one guy to be up on the pole. You're second in command. You're that powerful. He'll take care of it. And so they suggest, you know, set it up in the morning. Ask the king to put you know, Mordecai on it. Then when this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, and he ordered a pole set up. He liked the plan. Of course he liked the plan. His friends and his family are just pumping into his arrogance. But we learn a couple more things. Not only is it the impossible that becomes possible, and not only is timing that seems so imperfect, maybe God's perfect timing, but the third way that, that you can see a random coincidence might just be a divine appointment is that people that seem so together don't seem so together anymore. <laughs> Haman looks like he's got it all together to everybody. But he doesn't have it all together. He's, he's, he's got anger issues. He's got biases. He's got, he looks like he's got it all together, that he's going to succeed. And sometimes evil people look like they're going to accomplish what they set out to accomplish. People who are trying to hurt you in your career, people who are trying to hurt you in your life in one way or another, someone maybe very close to you, it, it looks like they're going to win out. But sometimes it's a divine appointment when people don't look as together as you thought they were. You say, wait a minute, what was God doing there? And in this era of social media, we think people have it so much better than we do. Oh, look at all the vacations they take. Look at where they go. Look at how wonderful they are. Look at him smiling with his kids. But what we don't know is that's only the stuff they're trying to portray. That's not really what's going on. People look like they've got it together, and we're looking at our own lives going, what's going on here? So how do we respond to the fact that people who once looked like they had it all together may not have it all together because God may be doing something even through them and their brokenness, even their evil intentions? Let God deal with other people when you can't or shouldn't. Sometimes we think we gotta correct everybody. We gotta make sure they understand how they should behave in the world. We have to speak up for everything. And some of you have, who have a, a clear sense of justice and right and wrong, you think you gotta say something all the time and Sometimes we have to step back and say, God's going to work on those people, even we don't know it. Remember, Esther and Mordecai have no idea uh, of Haman's plan to kill Mordecai. They don't know what God's doing behind the scenes here. Let God deal with other people when you can't or shouldn't. Fourthly, fourthly, we'll see here in chapter 6, we'll see a very important thing about choices. Let's look at chapter 6 of Esther. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. Now, here's something interesting. Now, those of you who have insomnia, I'm sorry to say this, but sometimes insomnia is a divine appointment from God. I know it's torture for those of you who have insomnia. But now, it says that night. What night? The night she had the banquet, but she didn't make the big ask. The king can't sleep. Xerxes can't sleep. He had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so he could have it read to him. Isn't this great? He gets the history book that he's been keeping on his own kingdom. 
And I picture this guy, you know, with the covers right up to his neck, and he's wearing, you know, kind of like the, the old-fashioned sleeping cap, you know, and he's sitting there with a cup of cocoa on the nightstand, and he calls his attendant and says, you know, get one of the history books and bring it in and tell me how great I am. Read those stories. Just go anywhere in there and read the great things of my kingdom. And so the guy happens to open the book of history, Verse 2, in those records he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. If you go back to chapter 2, the last few verses throws this story in. You think, why is this story there? That Mordecai overheard a plot by Xerxes' inner circle that they were going to overthrow him and kill him and take over the kingdom. And he tells Esther, who has just been queen for a little while, and she tells Xerxes, and they bring in Mordecai and they celebrate who he is and what he's done. No, they don't. He does that, but they don't. Verse three, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Nothing? Oh my goodness, we gotta do something for him. Just then there's some noise in the courtyard and he says, who's in the courtyard early in the morning like this? And they say, oh, it's Haman. He says, oh, oh, bring him in. Verse six, so Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman, you can help me with this. If I really want to bless someone, I really wanna show how important they are, I wanna let people know this is the most important person in my kingdom to me right now, what should I do for that man? Haman thought to himself, this is what he's thinking in his head, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. You find some other big time official and let that official see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official shout out as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And this is gonna happen in the town square and scholars say that this is an indication that this person is potentially a successor to the emperor. That's the honor that's being given. Put on the king's horse with the king's royal robes, and Haman says, that's what you do. That's what you do, king, if you really want to honor that person. This may have gone way beyond what Xerxes had in mind, but he says, excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. I'd like your plan, Haman. He didn't get a chance to say, I'd like to impale Mordecai on a pole. Now remember, Esther and Mordecai know nothing of any of this from the time she said, uh, come back tomorrow night for dinner and maybe I'll make the big ask. What has God been doing? He's been working, not coincidentally, not out of karma. This isn't karma. This is a just, holy God working out his sovereign plan Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does to someone who he wishes to honor. And afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried down dejected and completely humiliated. And Haman goes home and his wife and his friends say, you better stop going after Mordecai. This is gonna be the end of you. And next week, we'll find out what happens at the second banquet. But so far, you can read for yourself. 
You can read for yourself. But so far, the hand of God is so obvious here. There are no coincidences. This is much more than a coincidence happening. That night, he gets insomnia. That night, Haman shows up with this plot to destroy Mordecai, have him impaled on this big pole in the morning, and everything flips around so that it's Haman walking Mordecai through the streets saying, this is what the king does when he wants to honor a man. Do you see how God is the God of reversals? This story is a, a book of reversals here. The fourth sign of random coincidence is a divine appointment. Choices that seem so disconnected don't seem so disconnected anymore. You can't sleep. Give me a book. Seems like a random choice. The assistant opens it up. It happens to fall to the page of something that happened five years earlier when Mordecai did something great to save the king. Is that a random choice? Is that a coincidence? Haman shows up with this evil plot early in the morning just in time for the king to say, why don't you take Mordecai and parade him through the streets as a great, great hero, perhaps my successor. When you look at the choices of people in your life and the people in your background, even your own choices, sometimes they seem disconnected, but the master weaver is weaving something in his eternal purposes and plans in our life. And as we look back, we have to recognize the hand of God in these divine appointments. So what do you do when you recognize the choices that seem so disconnected don't seem so disconnected anymore? Remember that God is working even when you don't know he is. We just sang that. That he works even when we don't know he's working. Remember that God is working even when you don't know he is. In the random supposedly random choices you're making, people around you are making, the government is making, things, is, things that are happening... I heard the story of a man named Ralph. Ralph was the manager of a freight line showroom and things were going great, but as he said, he fell into the bottle and couldn't get out and became an alcoholic. And he took a leave of absence, tried to get himself together. He did get sober. He came to Christ during that time and went back to his work. Things were going great and lived here in Ventura County. And, and, and then all of a sudden he, he relapsed and alcoholism took over and his life was in shambles and he tried to get to some resources down in the San Fernando Valley and that didn't work out for him. And, and he's in Ventura County again, just walking on a street in Oxnard. And here he is, a broken man, alcoholism has taken over, and a man walks up and says, you look hungry, and he says, I am. And the man said, two blocks from here is a mission. You need to go, they'll feed you. He goes to the Ventura County Rescue Mission. They feed him, and he looks, he says to them, well, there was this man that specifically had all the details, even what was for dinner tonight. And they said, we've never heard or seen of that man. God created in his just wandering, seemed like an aimless moment to be on a street. God put a man in his path who pointed him to the mission. In the mission, he got his life straightened around and to this day now is serving others. Some of you who work with Ventura County Rescue Mission and various ministries that we have with them, they're a wonderful partner. Some of you know these stories, like the, stories, the story of Ralph. Ventura County Rescue Mission is a mission that Leslie and I have supported. Our church has as a partner and we've supported in a variety of ways. And they're celebrating their 50th year as a ministry. I love that story of Ralph, and there are many more stories like that. I thought I'd just take a moment to invite you to their 50th anniversary gala. Now, we don't do this a lot for all of our partners, you know, for their annual galas. They all have them. But 50 years, we'll do that for some of our partners. But they have lives where they, these people tell stories on their website where you can see the hand of God, these moments. And God is working. And 
So I'd encourage you to go to the gala that's coming up there on September 8th at the Reagan Library. Invest in what they're doing with your energy and time. There's gonna have some great music there. You can go to vcrescuemission.org and sign up. I love the story of Ralph. All the stories on their website. I was looking at them earlier this week. All the different stories are stories where God was working his divine appointments when they'd look back and say they were just coincidence, random choices of random people. Leslie and I will be at the gala. We'd love to see you there as we would celebrate with this partner, this great milestone of ministry. The fifth and final sign that a divine appointment or a random coincidence might just be a divine appointment. Outcomes that seem so inevitable don't seem so inevitable anymore. Now remember, Esther and Mordecai don't know about this yet. We'll see what happens in chapter seven next week. But what seems so inevitable that somehow the Jews could be saved is not so inevitable anymore. Things are happening behind the scenes. So what do we do when we start to say, okay, okay, I took that next step, and why do you, what do you know? It's not so impossible. These things, these things don't seem so inevitable. I look back, and I see the hand of God in these divine appointments. What's your response in that moment? You say, but I don't know what to do next. Then what do you do? You trust God with the results of your next right step. You take the next right step. People might say, well, I did that last week. Well, then what's your next right step this week? You say, I want to know the rest of the journey. I want to know the, how, how the staircase I'm climbing by faith twists and turns. I want to know what's up there in the dark. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said. You don't have to see the whole staircase just to take the first step. You step out by faith. Every next right step allows us to see more clearly the random coincidences of life. The luck, the karma, the chances, the happenings as divine appointments with God. And that will bring joy and peace to you. And what do you do in response? You take the next right step and you leave the results to God. There's a part of Larry and Becky's story that wasn't in the video and they didn't tell you. When Larry was in high school in the Detroit, Michigan area, he stole a car. Our founding pastor is guilty of grand theft auto. (laughs) I kid you not, he stole a car. He got in trouble in the juvenile court system. His pastor's wife stepped up and said, what if, judge, what if he were to be sent to a private Christian school out of state to turn his life around? Would you approve that? The judge approved it. He went to Wheaton Academy for his final year of high school instead of going the other path. Then that spark happened between he And Becky, seven years later, they would go on their first date. Then they got married 60 years ago. They moved to California. God used them to plant Calvary Community Church. Yes, I am saying that God took our founding pastor's grand theft auto (laughs) and wove it into his eternal purposes and plans. It was one of the dots that God was weaving. He takes the good, bad, the ugly, the failures of others, our failures, our heartaches, the brokenness, the pain, the success points. He takes everything. There's no luck. There's no coincidence. And as God's children, we need to take the next right step and allow God to show us that was a divine appointment. God was at work. God was doing something. What's your next right step in your journey with God? Take it this week. Thank you so much, Father, for this incredible story in the Old Testament of Esther and 
and your hand in a book where you're not even named. But we know from the lens of the other 65 books that this is you. You're at work among your people. You're keeping your promise to the nation of Israel. Something's happening here. And all this goes on behind the scenes that Mordecai and Esther don't know all this except for Mordecai being paraded around in celebration. I can imagine confusion has set in, uncertainty, and yet you're at work. Maybe we look at our lives, we look back and say, what happened there? Boy, I blew it there. Wow, she did this to me, he did that to me, they this, and we don't know what we're gonna do going forward. Lord, help us to just stop, recognize that you have us right where you want us, recognize the divine appointments that have gotten us here, and then may we take the next right step, whether it's stop a relationship we shouldn't be in, whether it's pick up our Bible and start reading it, whether it's prayer, whether it's going for counseling, for healing in our marriage, whether it's showing up at church and not getting too comfortable at home, joining a small group, joining a ministry, talking to our neighbors, sharing the gospel, whatever it is, Lord, confronting someone who's done us wrong, extending forgiveness to someone who's hurt us, help us to take that next right step. And then after that, help us to take the next right step so that we'll be able to see your hand in the course of our lives. We pray for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.